Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with two recent astrobytes of our choosing, plus or minus an extra astrobyte, and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a fifth-year PhD candidate at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and the galaxies they come from. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a fifth-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the upper atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. I'm Sabrina Berger. I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne, where I study the high redshift universe, both observationally and theoretically. You're listening to episode 65, A Tale of Sixes. A lot of astronomical studies focus on single objects, be it a newly discovered planet that might harbor life, one of the most distant galaxies, but these objects don't often exist in isolation. Or maybe they do, that's something we're going to (laughs) discuss. The story of the universe is often a story of interaction, and some of the most dramatic astrophysical phenomena unfold on stages containing multiple players. Today, we're going to look at a few of those stages and zoom in on astronomical systems containing multiple bodies. In astronomy, the measure of how many bodies a system has is called its multiplicity, and we're going to be focusing on systems with a multiplicity of not one or two, but of six. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So we've got six planets, six stars, and six galaxies to introduce you to today. But first, what do we use to study multiplicity in the universe? I think about large-scale surveys, one of those epic surveys where we're trying to study a lot of objects all at once or large swaths of the sky. Let me give you a rundown for some of maybe my favorite surveys or also some of the most famous surveys, I think. The first one that came to my mind was the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. SDSS has imaged and measured spectra for more than 3 million objects, which is pretty insane. It's been going since 2000. It's on its 16th data release, which is actually the fourth release of its fourth phase. It's definitely one of the most detailed and largest sky surveys ever. And I thought it's kind of interesting that it's actually only observing on a 2.5 meter wide optical telescope. So for reference, Keck is 10 meters wide. So it's interesting that this sort of maybe lesser telescope or less powerful telescope was used for this large, large sky survey. Uh, The other really important one and also important for my astrobite today is TESS, which is the Transiting Exoplanet Sky Survey, looking to detect exoplanets with the transit method and survey 85% of the sky. Also, to shout out some of my radio friends, VLAS, which is the Very Large Array Sky Survey. It's covering the entire sky north of negative 40 degrees in declination at three polarizations between 2,000 to 4,000 megahertz at 2.5 arc second resolution. And it's actually led to this really interesting serendipitous discovery. I don't know if y'all have heard of it, but there was a science paper in 2021. VLAS discovered this transient that was consistent with a theoretical type of supernova cause where like a compact object hits its companion in a binary system and triggers a supernova. Whoa, I didn't hear about this. Yeah, the images associated with this paper are really cool. Let's link to that for sure. Shout out my friend Dylan. 
that's his paper. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So we use these surveys to survey a large portion of the sky, but we tend to follow up with these other crazy precise instruments like JWST or Keck or maybe even the VLA itself. We just, you know, look at that part of the sky for longer and discover more about something that was initially detected with, you know, one of these less sensitive instruments. Cool. I'm excited to hear more about some of the case studies for it later in this episode. Okay, next question. Does multiplicity depend on the properties of the objects in a system, like their mass or their age? And if so, what are those key properties? I'm trying to think of what it might depend on if not the properties of the system. I guess it could be random, right? And I guess to some extent, there probably is an aspect of randomness. But there's also an aspect of randomness that's roped into the properties as well. So they might be indistinguishable. Hmm. So I think, yes, I think it definitely depends on the properties. But I don't know that we have a good understanding of this. Probably the most important is how the object or the grouping of objects forms. So, for example, for stars, right, a star forming from a molecular cloud has to contract. And if multiple cores develop in the cloud, then you form a multiple star system. So it's possible that chemistry and random chance creates overdensities in multiple regions of the cloud and also the right chemicals, for example, carbon monoxide, which is a very effective radiator, are present in certain locations in the cloud to move the heat away so the cloud can continue to contract and eventually reach the density required to start fusion. So if clouds across cosmic time accumulate more heavy metals that are efficient radiators, it's possible that you could have a higher multiplicity of a system on average with time, like low redshift compared to high redshift? I believe that's the understanding. And the population three stars, the oldest ones in the universe, were exceptionally large and burned out exceptionally quickly. And so the likelihood that those were in binaries is small. So stars in that way are similar to humans, where you're more likely to have twins the more you age. Oh, older mothers give birth to twins more often. Is that a real yeah, thing? Yeah. I didn't know that. Isn't that just because of in vitro? <laughs> oh, wait, is that why? <laughs> I think it's just because you have to do in no vitro as your eggs age and you're more, you're more likely wow. to get a twin. Is that? I might be wrong, but I don't hmm. think it's associated with a biological thing, is it? Well, it is genetic, right? So <laughs> I thought it was biological. Stars that were born from binaries would be more likely to have binaries, but that's also true about stars that are not in binaries. I don't know if that analogy works. Moving on. (laughs) (laughs) We will look it up as soon as this episode ends and put the answer in the show notes. Now I'm really curious. Anyhow, for galaxies, I think one of the big open questions is whether or not galaxy clusters form inside out or outside in. That is to say, the smallest scale structures form first and are seeded before the larger scale intergalactic medium forms, or rather the opposite, where the large cluster forms first and then hierarchically breaks down into smaller and smaller chunks. So that might change. But there's so much we don't know about the way the galaxies form and evolve that I don't think that's so well determined. For planets, considering that they're pretty common in the near Milky Way, it's pretty easy to get multiple planetary systems. But I think the stellar properties would be the most important thing as to whether or not planets form. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think star properties are probably the, the leading indicator there. Got it. 
All right. So in this episode specifically, we're going to be talking about systems with six bodies, planets, galaxies, mm-hmm. etc. Six bodies in a system, is that rare? How many of those types of systems have we discovered to date? For stellar systems, there are some known local six-star systems. I'm going to talk about one of them. And they're not that rare. Like, they're they're not common, but they're going to be throughout the Milky Way and probably more. I think six is the highest we currently know. But that depends on what you define as a star system. If you look at open clusters, they'll have hundreds of stars. If you look at globular clusters, they'll have up to millions of stars in very, very dense packed orbits. And at that point, a globular cluster sort of borders on an elliptical galaxy and might even be considered a dwarf galaxy at some point in there. So you start to become a very different definition of what you consider a stellar system versus like wide orbits of stars that happen to orbit in a six versus a dense pocket of a million that orbit like crazy. For galaxies, every galaxy we know of is in a cluster. So I mean, it's different. The size scales are different. The size scale of an individual galaxy is fairly large compared to the size scale of a cluster, whereas the size of a star is very small compared to the near stellar neighborhood. So galaxies are like basically all in clusters. And so six or more, six is like small for galaxies. Galaxy clusters will get huge. And then planetary systems with six plus are not the most common, but they're not rare, right? We've we've surveyed a great chunk of the near Milky Way and found six planets do occur with some regularity, though I think the most common ones happen to be close in orbits, not like our solar system. Mm. Yeah, in my astrobite, actually, they noted that there are only eight other discovered stars with six planets. But I also feel like the major caveat there is we just might not have detected other ones. So that's sort of like a lower limit, in my opinion. Eight out of 5,000 known exoplanets, or eight systems out of 5,000 known exoplanets, that's really pretty good. That's not super rare. Like, if it were one, even that wouldn't be super rare because there are, what, 10 billion stars in the Milky Way. Each one probably has an average of planets, so 10 billion, and we know 5,000. So if it were super rare, we wouldn't have found any of them. I'm also realizing that maybe considering stars, planets, and galaxies and their formations packed into one episode was maybe biting off more than we can chew, but we'll do our best. (laughs) Yes, in today's episode, the universe from start to finish, all the parts. Yeah, we study everything in the next 30 minutes. (laughs) My last question before we jump into the astrobytes, what can we learn from multi-body systems that we can't learn studying solitary objects? My follow-up question is what actually counts as a multi-body system because when I was thinking about this question, I was like, this kind of reminds me of that video where you're zooming out from like the Earth and you see the Earth and the solar system and then the galaxy and then the galaxy cluster and then like our super cluster. So I think what we can learn about multiple objects systems really depends on what scales we're talking about, right? On cosmological scales, we're probably thinking about the evolution of the universe, maybe how the universe first ionized and the first stars and galaxies formed. But in planetary systems, we might talk more about tidal effects. So how gravitational pulls from the different planetary objects in a system and its host star affect the others and resonances, which I'll talk more about in my astrobite today. Maybe they all come together in that they're usually interactions gravitationally. I was also thinking about how I can't really think about many things that are solitary objects like everything in the universe is affected by something else's gravitational pull to some extent 
of course that varies greatly, Mm -hmm. but what's the cutoff? (laughs) Well, gravity, right, as you said, I think is the most logical organizing element. So your argument is that there's always a multi-body somewhere within a system. It just depends on what scale (laughs) you're looking at. I guess down to like the quark level, right? Okay. Yeah, I don't know if I'd go there. The quark <laughs> level. <laughs> Astro sound quarks coming at you in three, two. I think it's, in, I mean, maybe we should save this for the discussion, but the prevalence of, in our solar system, of multiple planets and multiple moons allows us to do comparative studies in our own solar system, comparing multi-moon to single moon to non-moon systems. I think this is some of the argument for doing solar system science as a precursor to exoplanet science, because we have a lot we can study before we even leave the solar system. I thought that for multi-stellar systems, there's also a whole field of research associated with taking advantage of the fact that we assume that they formed at the same time. Oh, yeah, for sure. So then in that case, like having multiple samples of objects where we assume they all started in the same way, you can compare like nature versus nurture arguments for stellar evolution. I think it depends on the system, but certainly for like globular clusters and open clusters, it seems like that's a very good assumption. But it's possible for some wide stellar binaries to have been captured. Is that common? I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. Hmm. Well, thank goodness we got the discussion portion of the episode out of the way early so we can just focus on the astrobytes later on. (laughs) (laughs) We are next going to switch over to a quick coffee break and musical interlude. And it's not quite time for our space on yet, but Sabrina is going to bring us some espresso and some harmonies. So my bite today is called Dance of Harmony, an intriguing TOI-178 multiplanetary system. It's an astrobite that was written by the guest author, Syed Ali Rafi, and the original paper is titled Six Transiting Planets and a Chain of Laplace Resonance in TOI-178. It was written by A. Lalu et al. and published in Astronomy and Astrophysics in 2021. This astrobite got me thinking back to my planetary science class in undergrad because it was the last time I thought about resonances in planetary systems. And honestly, I don't think I wanted to think about them again. This astrobite, <laughs> this astrobite forced me into doing that, and I feel like I understand them maybe slightly better now. So this team discovered this ultra-fascinating planetary system with six planets. So to put this into perspective, there are more than 5,000 confirmed exoplanets from about 3,800 systems. Only 800 out of those 3,800 systems have more than one planet, and this test object of interest has six. But the key thing here is less so maybe about the planetary system having six planets in it, and more just that they found a very interesting type of resonance within the system. This is the Laplacian resonance? Yeah. I've never heard of it. Me neither. I had it either. I've seen Laplace everywhere else but resonance. So what do we mean by resonance? We should start from the beginning. To put things into perspective musically, I think about acoustic resonance. So the first thing that comes to my mind are you know, musical or acoustic resonances where the frequencies played on an instrument that match the instrument's own natural frequencies. When that's played, the sound is amplified. And when we talk about orbital resonances, this is kind of analogous. You can kind of think about it like this. It's where systems of bodies exert periodic and regular gravitational influence on each other. 
So it's kind of like when a planet plays another planet's natural frequencies or a multiple of that frequency, this will affect other orbiting planets' motion. It's actually most common that the resonance lead to instability and work themselves out into not happening anymore. But this system had this really interesting type of resonance and it led to actually stability. So the type of resonance the system has is a Laplace resonance, and it's a type of mean motion resonance. So that means when we divide the orbital frequencies of two planets within the system, the ratio is close to the ratio of two small integers. So does that mean like one orbits in a year and the other orbits in two years? Yes, exactly. So for example, Neptune and Pluto are in the mean motion resonance of two to three. So that means that Neptune completes two of its orbits right when Pluto completes three. So a Laplace resonance, which is what they see in the system, is a series of two mean motion resonances in order. For example, four to two to one. Okay, so how do they actually detect this? What do they do the follow-up on? When we say TOI, we mean test object of interest. So again, back to that test instrument that I discussed in the intro. So they detect this object with tests, but they do follow-up transit observations with three optical to near-infrared telescopes. CHEOPS, which is the characterizing exoplanet satellite by the European Space Agency. They also look at this object with the ground-based next-generation transit survey. And I don't think I need to spell out this last acronym because it's so fun, SPECULUS, <laughs> which is actually, I think, named after the cookie. This combination of instruments is like my favorite combination of food because they also follow up with the radio velocity observations with my favorite coffee drink, the espresso, a shell spectrograph for rocky exoplanets and stable spectroscopic observations. And they measure radio velocity from that. So they do a lot of transit and radio velocity follow up. They find that these six planets had periods that were all different in space between 1.9 and 20.7. So resonance, I know I kind of already gave it away, but maybe resonance is popping back into your mind again. And then the authors use a Bayesian model, or another way to say it is they sample like a probability space of the parameters, trying to determine what the best model for the data is, assuming circular orbits. And then they can extract the planetary parameters. So they find that the system has the mean motion resonance that we discussed earlier, they also find that this mean motion resonance is imperfect. So they're kind of like, this seems like a Laplace resonance, but we need to dig in a bit deeper to make sure it is. So the way that they like measure imperfection of mean motion resonances is they use this thing called the distance or resonant angle. So it's the distance from the exact resonance. They found that the derivatives or the change in time of the planet's resonance angles is approximately 1.3 degrees per day for all of the orbits. So they're all like equally far from resonance. So then they're like, okay, this must be a Laplace resonance. They're not like all scattered derivatives in time. So that's really what confirmed it. Help me understand this. So what were they looking for that they were all 1.3 away? It's sort of like the distance from an integer resonance. So right now they're all like, you know, 1.91, 2.5, 3.4, and they're looking for the distance from an actual integer resonance, which would be a perfect mean motion resonance. Yeah. So this is where the musical part of this astrobite comes in. It's a dance of harmony. So it's actually three Laplace resonances, two to four to six to nine to 12. It's like the first three planets, C, D, E, and then 
D-E-F, and then E-F-G. <laughs> Those are the three Laplace wow. resonances, which is pretty insane. Cool. So resonance is really cool. It's all musical and stuff, but what does it actually mean physically for the system? Resonances in this particular planetary system actually act to stabilize the planets, and they show some simulations from this. And the stability is highly dependent on the planes of these orbits being very close to circular orbits or having low eccentricity. Zero eccentricity actually gives the most stable solution for the given periods that they determined for these planets. And extracting these orbital and physical parameters, they see that the system will actually stay stable for the next hundreds of thousands of years, which is pretty insane. Resonances usually act to disrupt the stability of the system. Another interesting thing is habitability. So they don't see that any of these planets fall within the habitable zone, which is 0.2 astronomical units from the host star. But they point that actually theoretically or with simulations, there should be more in that habitable zone, just for these types of planetary systems. So additional observations maybe over longer periods of time could potentially reveal a planet in the habitable zone. So maybe in a couple of years, we'll have to take this bite out. We'll put it in a Tale of Sevens episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the very, very famous Trappist-1 system has seven planets, actually. Cool. Hmm. And the even more famous solar system has eight. <laughs> And we have good observations of that one, right? Yeah, we've confirmed all of them. What about nine? I thought there was a nine now. <laughs> We're not going down this rabbit hole. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sabrina, for the astrobite. Yeah, it was fun. It thoroughly confirms that I do not understand resonances. <laughs> and me too. I'm trying. I'm trying over here, you guys. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I, I, I don't really. I can pretend, but I don't really understand it. <laughs> it's just trippy to think about because even in this paper, they said something like, I didn't get this at first. Like the orbital ratios and the period ratios are different. Like I had to think about it for a while. <laughs> yeah, Kepler's third law. It'll get you. Dang it, Kepler, Kepler, and Laplace got us again. <laughs> Conspiring to make solar systems not work. We should move on. So now it's time for the multiplicative melody of the multi-bodied Fortnite. resonance <laughs> surely multiple instruments are resonating but that is not the primary focus of <laughs> planetary system resonance <laughs> that sounds very similar other than the background sound it sounds very similar to like the toi 178 uh system orbital sound that they made on youtube okay what do you think will well so you there was a violin in the background that was continuous and i'm kind of curious as to why that was the case 
So I'm thinking it's not an orbital thing and maybe there's some sort of background noise and other detections. So maybe it's some sort of detection sonification. But I heard notes being hit at the same time. Like every so often, I would hear like uh, an interval. <laughs> Ooh, okay. So final answers are detection, statistics, and resonance system. Yeah, I know I'm wrong, by the way. I'm just <laughs> trying. <laughs> so this is actually a sonification of the Jewel Box Open Stellar Cluster, oh. or NGC 4755. They don't go into a ton of detail about how they translated the data into sound. So it's not entirely clear to me whether it's the sonification of the image directly or catalog level data. That is not super obvious. But this open cluster is near the Southern Cross. It's named the Jewel Box because you can see lots of different colored stars, many with different ages and, and masses. And the data has been taken from two mass wise, Tycho 2 and Gaia. And they did say that the scientists sonified optical light as the guitar, near-infrared light as the harp, and mid-infrared as the vibraphone. Ooh. And they additionally played a hurdy-gurdy on top of that. I don't know what that is. I don't either. Don't ask me. Okay. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This sonification was actually a final master's project for the Valencia International University, which Hmm. is cool. What was that violin? Maybe that's the hurdy-gurdy. I don't know. Okay, moving on. (laughs) Was it an image that was sonified? Imaging data, yes. But whether they sonified directly the image in the way that we've seen before, like sweeping through or anything, I'm not entirely sure. Okay, it sounded a little bit too pointillist to be diffuse. Mm -hmm. That's why I said detections, but maybe perhaps it's photometry then. I think that's probably right. For what it's worth, the hurdy-gurdy is a stringed instrument that produces sound by a hand-crank-turned wheel rubbing against the strings. Cool. Okay. That was my question. I've never heard of that in my life. But it looks a lot like a violin with a couple of extra pieces attached. That's what I'm going to name my kid someday. That's now just slang for whatever we don't understand in this episode. Resonances, definitely hurdy-gurdy. Oh, you can hear all the hurdying. <laughs> That was a really cool space sound. I feel like, I mean, I'm kind of the most right here because <laughs> I thought it was like, or I thought it was something orbital or multiple bodies. So I think I finally won one. <laughs> right. There were multiple astrophysical objects. If that was the criterion, then you won. <laughs> and now Will is going to tell us about Castor, a hierarchical system containing stars all the way down. Go ahead, Will. Indeed. So this astrobite is called Dancing with the Six Stars, or a 200-year story of the Castor system. And this astrobite was written by William Balmer, and the title of the paper is The Orbits and Dynamical Masses of the Castor System. Great title. And the paper was written by Guillermo Torres and others, and it was submitted to AppJ, not yet published. So between... My presentation of this, the astrobite being written, and the author of the paper, everyone involved is a William. So I guess <laughs> you have to take some liberties with Guillermo, but that's, that's William in Spanish. In fact, there's actually a fourth William as part of this story, so just hang on. Can we get up to six? I tried, but we couldn't. 
When I was in high school and learning about astronomy, one of the things I was most surprised to learn was that the prevalence of multiple star systems is pretty high. In fact, I tried to get some numbers on this, and it's all over the place. Some claim up to 85% of stars are in binaries or higher. Some claim it's 50%. Some claim it's actually lower. I think it's well believed that binaries and higher are more common than single stars, but the exact population we don't know, probably because it's really hard to determine if a star is in a binary, and then to measure if actually each binary is itself a binary. That's pretty much what happened with the Castor system. Castor is only 15 parsecs away, so it's pretty close as far as stars go, and to the naked eye it appears as one fairly bright star, 1.93 magnitudes. So six is the limit of vision. So it's well within our vision. Even in a city, you can probably see Castor if you're at the right latitude. And it's actually, as the title implies, six stars. But it wasn't discovered to be six until more recently. Back in 1718, James Pound discovered that it might be a binary. And in fact, it was based on some earlier work by Giovanni Cassini, the namesake of the Cassini mission. But it was actually in 1803 that the fourth William of the story, William Herschel, came on scene. And he wrote a really important paper discussing all known binaries and about the work that was done to understand them, including Castor. But by the end of the 19th century, we had discovered that in fact Castor is six. And it's an interesting six. The star itself is Castor. That's the overall grouping. Each group within that that orbits each other, a common center of mass, are given a capital letter, and then under each capital letter, they get a lowercase letter. So Castor has the capital A, the capital B, and the capital C pairs within it. But actually, capital A and capital B orbit each other, and then they separately orbit capital C. Each of those capitals has a lowercase a and b within it. So you have a pair and a second pair, orbiting each other, then orbiting themselves as a four, and then orbiting with the other two to make six. The close pairs are very close, less than a day orbit up to about nine days. Now the motion of the capital A and capital B sets within Castor have been tracked since the 18th century, but in this paper the authors wanted to model all the orbits and resolve the 3D orbital characteristics. This is actually really hard. Spectroscopy is very helpful, but it only gives us motion along the line of sight. And so the trick is, if you have the line of sight motion and you have the sky plane motion, that is, how they appear to move in the sky, you can actually get the full 3D solution. The problem is, spectroscopy cannot give you the sort of resolution, the spatial resolution you need to actually see the motion. Even with adaptive optics on the Keck telescopes, the best that we have can't resolve it. What you do is you use interferometry. And this is really cool because it's interferometry in the visible wavelengths, which is not something that I've come across before. Yeah. That's so hard. <laughs> yeah, what? There's a reason that it's not often done. <laughs> so the interferometer they used is called the Center for High Angular Resolution Astronomy Array, or CHARA. It's located on Mount Wilson in California, and it has six one-meter telescopes that then combine their beams in like a beam combination house or something like that. So in, in radio, each antenna gets its data, they're combined in post-processing for 
visual interferometry. They actually combine the beam paths together and then they create the data. So the alignment's got to be really perfect. Slight variations in phase have to be measured and correlated. And by doing this, they can get an angular resolution of 0.2 milliarc seconds, which is wild for what it's worth. Hubble, which is a better telescope than any of these in space, has an angular resolution of about 0.05 arc seconds. So what, that's 50 milliarc seconds, and this is 0.2 milliarc seconds, and you're on the ground. So that's super cool. Do they mention the effective area of all of the optical telescopes? Like, does it work the same way as radio where it becomes yes, like an effective telescope that's as big as the longest baseline, basically? It is. And their longest baseline is 331 meters. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Th this is a very long baseline interferometer. Not, not compared to radio, but compared to visible. So using Chara... They were able to directly measure the position of the closest binary pair in the star system. And they combined that with radial velocity measurements going back as far as 1778, which I think is just the coolest thing. As someone who's using archival data from like the 50s and 60s, I'm just so impressed that you can make use of observations from 1778 as part of a 3D orbital solution to this star system. I mean, it's just fabulous. Another example where we use this sort of stuff is for tracking the solar cycle, where sunspot counts go back into the Middle Ages. That's an area where, in fact, we have 25 solar cycles because somebody did the hard process of counting. Mm -hmm. Associated with the Maunder Minimum, right? Mm, yep. Way back when in like late 1600s or whatever. Right, that for 100 years or so, the sun was just wimpy and nobody understands why. Yeah, it's incredibly cool. Okay, so putting all this data together, yep. you're able to say what about Castor? Well, so now all of the stars within the Castor system have known masses within 1%, which is really cool. Their ages are known, their radii are known, their luminosity are known, their orbits are known, all of the properties are known. Wow. And usually you have to infer some properties. So for example, mm. age is really hard to determine. You have to make some sort of inference based on luminosity mass relation and other things like that. Now they don't have to because they can measure everything exactly. So they can calculate the age. They don't have to infer a relation. And they also find that these orbital planes are really different, that each pair is very tilted with respect to each other, which is kind of cool. They find that the age of the system is 290 million years. That's certainly young compared to our 5 billion year old sun, but to be dynamically stable for 290 million years is really cool. And it implies based on their calculations that it's going to remain stable for hundreds of millions of years. Wow. So I guess we just took it up three orders of magnitude with your bite. Since mine was only hundreds of thousands of years, yeah. yours is hundreds of millions of years that it'll remain stable. I mean, it's already been stable for 300 million years, so it's got a good track record. Dang, that's very cool. Yeah, this was a fun bite. Thanks so much, Will, for telling us about that six-bodied stellar system. I wanted to highlight very briefly an astrobite that didn't quite make the cut for this episode. It's a study of six galaxies, but it's also a little bit cheating because it's not six gravitationally bound systems. It's just six galaxies in the sample that were analyzed because they share certain properties. The astrobite is called A Requiem for Dead Galaxies, and it's written by Olivia Cooper about a paper by Catherine Whitaker and others written last year. 
We've talked a lot on the show before about galaxy evolution, namely how we really don't know much about it, but how a lot of studies concern the transition between active star-forming galaxies and quenched galaxies that have shut off most or all of their star formation activity. This astrovite focuses on a particular question associated with that shutoff. If you look out into the high redshift universe, namely out to a redshift of about 4, you find a lot more quenched galaxies than you would expect from our best models of galaxy evolution. So the question is, why did these galaxies stop forming stars so early? It's particularly tough to study these galaxies in detail because not only are they really far away, but by definition they're dim because they're devoid of young, bright, newly formed stars. Mm. Luckily, gravitational lensing can help us here. So galaxy clusters with significant amounts of mass can magnify the light from these distant quiescent galaxies, and they can help us make out exactly what's going on here. So this particular paper investigated the problem by focusing on six galaxies from the Requiem sample. And I really like this acronym because it's a contrived acronym. I won't go through it, but Requiem is a song to mourn the dead, and these galaxies are red and dead. So it's a Requiem to these galaxies. And the authors observed each of these galaxies with ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array, to measure the strength of the emission from dust grains within the galaxies. With this you can, assuming some fiducial dust-to-gas conversion ratio, here they use 100, which I guess is well-measured from others. Everybody uses 100. From other studies, fair enough. If they assume that conversion ratio, you can estimate how much gas is left in those galaxies to see whether or not they're really devoid of gas to form stars or whether something is inhibiting them from forming stars in some other mechanism that we don't understand yet. The end result of the study was that the authors only found detectable dust emission in two of the galaxies, and in the other four, they only have upper limits. This is, assuming this conversion ratio, 10 times less gas than our best galaxy evolution models would predict at that redshift. So it seems like they're just out of gas to be able to form stars to begin with. They're gassed out. They're all gassed out. And when you couple this with the heavy elements that are found in other quenched galaxies at lower redshifts, the authors conclude that they must have just had some super-enhanced star formation rates within the first few billion years of the universe, and now they have nothing left. So it proceeded quickly, and then they rapidly ran out of gas. Exactly. And not that something is actively shutting off star formation, but the gas is still there. It's just not being converted very efficiently. That is not what they think is happening. As for what cranked up star formation in the early universe for these galaxies, we still have no idea. We had my JWST paper that I presented a few episodes ago was trying to look at this as well. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. It was trying to, but it also... Hmm. Galaxies are complex systems. It was, I think it was connected with globular clusters more, but yeah. Good job keeping it short, Alex. Yeah, thanks for hosting and presenting an <laughs> Astrobite. That's a lot of work. He hasn't even begun cutting the episode yet. I know. And now let's quickly tie everything together with our one-sentence summaries. Sabrina, how about you go first? Sure. One particular planetary system discovered with tests hosts at least six planets around its host star, with period ratios all close to integers, and it's still stable. Cool. Alex? As we mourn the loss of six galaxies taken from us too soon... We play a requiem that celebrates all the star formation that they accomplished in their short lives. Very fitting tribute. 
Will? Castor is a sextuple star system, and now the 3D orbits of all six stars have been determined using visual interferometry and historical observations. Still such a crazy study. Pretty cool. All right, we have time for maybe one quick discussion question. We've talked about six body systems in this episode. Is six just some arbitrary milestone, or do we actually learn more from a six-body system than we would from a five-body system? And are we just waiting until we get some seven-body systems to tell us everything we need to know about (laughs) about these objects? I don't know. In my opinion, I think that there's a big difference between like a one, a two-body, and a three-body system. Those are all very different, and the last one is very difficult. So once we go like three plus, I don't know, at least in terms of dynamics, it just gets more complicated, but do we really learn more? I mean, maybe if you're talking like 10 plus. Well, I mean, I don't know. Six is 20% more than five. I mean, that outpaces inflation, so that's pretty good. (laughs) It's going to take 20% longer on... Probably not. It's probably scaling exponentially, like on a supercomputer. Right. So. <laughs> right, but it, but you learn exponentially more perhaps as well because the number of possible combinations is what? Six factorial as opposed to five factorial, right? But what specifically are you learning? I mean, if it's a question of like orbital dynamics and you have equations that describe well orbital dynamics, adding one more body in, hopefully the same equation should describe that additional body, right? But that's never how it works in practice, right? We always learn something different. There's always some unusual characteristic or something we didn't expect. So I think, you know, I think five, six, and seven could give us useful insights in comparison, right? What, you know, in, in a six, you can have three pairs. In a five and a seven, you can't. So I'd be really curious to see what a seven star system looks like and whether or not you get some interesting orbits. In a seven planetary system or star system you could still have three pairs and just one extra so it's just like perturbing the six body system a bit maybe it's unstable right maybe maybe the even numbers are stable just like the even numbered elements are much more common than the odd numbers because you can combine the even numbers and building blocks but even plus even always makes even to your point, Will, maybe there's some weird orbital instabilities that we only see once we get seven plus bodies that we haven't seen before because we haven't studied them in detail. That's super weird to think about. Or, or it could be some subset, but the seven creates a weird five that then become dynamically unstable or stable, right? A five is unstable, but you add two and I, I'm sure you can create whatever you want, but... You know, to spend your whole life as a theorist just thinking of what weird planetary system can I try to create versus like what is actually out there that we know exists. And let's let's start with that. I think there's something to be learned from that. I think that's enough to round out the discussion. Next time we'll do a three body episode and we'll have six astrobites that we'll have to cover in two minutes or less. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> That concludes episode 65 of Astro Soundbites, a tale of sixes. If you want to read the three astrobites we talked about today and or the associated papers, check out the links in the show notes. We've just passed Astro Soundbites' third birthday. Woo-woo! The CDC argues that by this age, your child should talk well enough for others to understand them most of the time. I think that's true. Hopefully we've hit that milestone. (laughs) If you found us to be predominantly coherent, you can check out all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Audible, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening. 
And don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. I was looking on their website and it looks like they have to have a half million gallon water tank in case of fire. Is that because it just must be getting so hot? Like combining the beams. But it's also Mount Wilson, which has seen a lot of fires recently, right? Oh, that's totally why. I just cut this. Interferometry <laughs> 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 is so powerful. And Sabrina thinks that telescopes <laughs> spontaneously light on fire. <laughs>